Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We have been reading the Gospels together this fall, and for the last five weeks, uh, we've been looking specifically at Jesus' teaching. And so we're going to look at one last teaching from Jesus this morning before uh, Advent begins next week. So once Jesus said that everyone uh, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. And there was this other time when Jesus was teaching uh, and the people that were listening to him were getting really angry, really upset, agitated, and hot at what he was saying. And Jesus turned to the disciples and asked if they wanted to abandon him. And Simon Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so what we've been saying as we've been looking at Jesus' teaching together for the last five weeks is that those, those two comments um, are a pretty great summary of Jesus' teaching and its effect for people like us. It is both wise and life-giving. So this morning we're going to look at the first lines of uh, what we sometimes call the Sermon on the Plain. So I'm going to read from Luke 6 for us, verses 20 through 26. It's printed in the order of worship. Um, You can follow along there if you'd like or just listen as I read from Luke 6. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, uh, as always, that as we uh, think about this word that we have read and heard together, that the word who became flesh taught us that you would help us to see him more clearly, that you would draw us more closely to this kingdom that he came to bring, that you would draw us more deeply into it, that you would show us how much he loves us and that you would change us by it. Father, we ask that the thing that we just sang, that you would revive your church in every part, that that would be true, our head, our heart, our hands, revive all of it through this word. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, on the advice of a friend, um, I bought one of those uh, battery-powered lawn mowers. Uh, I had been using an electric lawn mower, a corded electric lawn mower, for a long time, uh, mostly because I uh, was convinced that it made the most sense for the size of a Chicago lawn. I always figured that by the time I rounded up all the fuel and got the mix right and started a gas-powered mower, I could probably be done mowing if all I had to do was plug it in. So I got one of those. And I enjoyed it, but it came with all the pitfalls that you can imagine. You know, cords coming out of the socket while you're mowing, having to haul around 
extension cords running over the cord, which I have done. Um, so getting this, uh, this battery-powered mower was pretty great. Uh, but the other day, I went out uh, for what I hope was the last pass of the season, and uh, this thing would not start. I knew that the batteries were charged. I knew that the, the safety on the handle was engaged. Uh, but for some reason, that thing would just not go. And then I remembered that on this thing, there are actually two safeties, one up on the handle. And then there's one, uh, for some reason, down near the batteries. It's just this little pin at the end of a string that has to be inserted in a slot by the batteries. I have no idea why this has two safeties, but it does. So I put that thing in place, and sure enough, that's all it took. And I thought, man, I hope I never lose that little pin. <laughs> because this thing will definitely not work without it. And uh, I think that's how this teaching that we just read together works, too. Here's what I mean by that. On, on, their, own, on their own poverty and riches and hunger and satisfaction and sadness and laughter and exclusion and acceptance on their own, they have no real power to bring either blessing or woe to people like you and me, not in any lasting or durable or true sense. Poverty doesn't deliver the kingdom of God on its own any more than the ability to laugh means that you aren't really sad underneath it all. No, in order for these blessings and woes to work the way that Jesus says they work, he has to be the one saying them. They absolutely would not work without him. He is the linchpin that brings the power to this really subversive and wise and life-giving teaching. He is the only thing that makes them work. So Luke tells us that Jesus lifted up his eyes on the disciples, and that's a pretty important line given everything that has been happening in the hours up to this teaching. Uh, the night before, Jesus had been up on a mountain praying. All night he had been praying, Luke says, and then in the morning Jesus called some of his disciples to join him on that mountain, and from that group he chose 12 to be the apostles. And then those two groups, the apostles and the disciples, they come down the rest of the way, the mount, down the mountain, and Luke says that there are even more of Jesus' disciples at the bottom of the mountain, along with a great multitude of people from literally all over the place. They have come from everywhere. They came, Luke says, to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases, and all of the crowds sought to touch him. So that is the backdrop. That's the setting for this teaching. There's all kinds of important details popping out everywhere in that, and maybe in another sermon sometime we can talk about some of them. But for now, this is what I want us to notice. I want us to notice the diverse nature of this really very large crowd. There are folks who follow Jesus in this crowd, right? That's the disciples and, of course, the apostles. But this crowd is filled with lots of folks who didn't follow Jesus, too. They, they are the great multitude, some of whom have just come to check Jesus out, some of them who have come to see him do healing, some of them, no doubt, hope to be the object of that healing. So Luke, when he tells us that Jesus lifted his eyes on the disciples and started to teach, that's Luke's way of saying that Jesus is directing these words to the people who have chosen to follow him, his disciples. He's teaching them what the kingdom really looks like, what it really means to follow Jesus in that kingdom. 
He's given his disciples a new set of dispositions. He's given them a new set of loves, a new way to live and a new way to be in this world. And the same is true for all of us who follow Jesus this morning when we hear these words. But of course, these words serve as an invitation too. (laughs) That great multitude that's there, they get to hear this teaching. They get to hear these words and try it on for size. You know, they had... They had come for healing to that place, and maybe this teaching will bring the kind of healing that they didn't even know they were looking for. And maybe that's some of us this morning too. So here's what Jesus says first, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Happy and fortunate and contented are the poor because the kingdom is yours. Some of you may know that there was another time Jesus preached a sermon like this. It's it's recorded in Matthew's gospel. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, just like in this sermon, Jesus started by calling certain people blessed. The church calls these the Beatitudes. And when Jesus preached that sermon, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. seems like there what Jesus meant to emphasize emphasize was a sense of spiritual impoverishment, an awareness of a need for the visitation of God in our lives. And of course, that is precisely true, and it's precisely true because Jesus said it's true. But church, that's not what he's saying here. (laughs) He, He is simply saying, blessed are those who are poor, full stop. And no doubt there were a great many of the people who followed Jesus that morning who fit that category. A great deal of them. When Jesus says this, he is drawing on a rich and deep vein of scriptural teaching about God being close to and about God defending the poor. Psalm 109, for instance, says that God stands at the right hand of the needy one. Psalm 140 says that God will execute justice for the needy. Isaiah 41 says that God will not forsake the poor and the needy. God tells his people in Isaiah 51 that the thing that he chooses for them, the worship that he chooses for them, the devotion that he chooses for them is to share their bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into their houses. Provision after provision after provision is made for the poor in the law and in the prophets to make sure that they are fed, to make sure that they are clothed, to make sure that they are not taken advantage of, to make sure that they are not exploited. I'm saying if you read the Old Testament and you miss all of this, you're reading it with your eyes closed. So when Jesus comes onto the scene and he preaches that very first sermon in Nazareth, the one that the one that Pastor Dan walked us through at the beginning of this series on Jesus' teaching. When Jesus preaches that very first sermon, he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. These are the first words that we have recorded that Jesus reads out in public. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And this beatitude, church, is part of that good news. And part of being a Christian is to hear this beatitude and to hear all of that teaching in the scripture about caring for the poor and to take it as seriously as Jesus did. 
and to use some of the time and the money we have been given by him to follow faithfully behind him and care for the poor. And that is most definitely part of the point here. (laughs) This is good news for people who need it, good news for people who had not caught a break in a long time. Jesus isn't lionizing poverty. He's not idealizing poverty any more than he's idealizing hunger or sadness or exclusion and the rest of the Beatitudes. The point is this. The point is that a great reversal is coming. The point is that a great reversal had already begun with the presence of Jesus. A great turning back, a great upheaval and a turning back of the broken and peaceless and unjust and chaotic order of things. It's It's a great turning that had already begun and that one day, one day will be all that anyone will ever see anywhere. Because when the gracious and peaceable rule of Jesus one day fully covers this broken earth, it will then no longer be a broken earth. There won't be any poverty. And there won't be any hunger. And there won't be any sadness. And there won't be any exclusion. And that's the truth. And you can count on it. And that's what I mean when I say that Jesus' presence is the thing that makes the Beatitudes work in the way that he says they will work. He is the power behind this life-giving and subversive and wise teaching. Because his death, his, his life, his resurrection, his ascension, those are the great realities that have begun turning things back to the way they were always meant to be. And when he comes again, church, it will be finished. Behold, Jesus says, I'm making everything new. And Jesus is saying, you definitely want to be a part of that. (laughs) Which is why each of these Beatitudes has has an anti-Beatitude kind of pinned to it. A statement of woe, an exclamation of sorrow and pity for those who choose to remain in the old broken order of things. Woe to you who are rich, Jesus says, for you have received your consolation. That's a very interesting way for Jesus to put it, I think. Because it points to the fact that he is not saying that our bank accounts are simply the index of our faith, and that's that. It's more complicated than that. To the extent that wealth functions as a consolation, to the extent that it it functions as a comfort, as an insulator from trouble, then Jesus is saying, woe to us because we will not be looking for another comforter anytime soon. But that other one is the comfort who made us. And that other one is the one for whom our hearts are restless. (laughs) You see this everywhere in scripture. Zacchaeus over in Luke 19, he had wealth, he had lots of wealth. But in the end, he abandoned finding consolation in it. He gave it away as the good fruit of his repentance. And what did Jesus say to him when he did it? Today salvation has come to this house. Joseph of Arimathea had wealth, but he was, as Mark the Gospel writer put it, looking for the kingdom of God. The guy that we looked at last week 
had wealth, Nicodemus, the ruler who came to Jesus at night, but in the end, that wealth was rightly ordered in his life. Not a consolation, not a comfort, not something he clung to or leaned on, but something that he was glad to give away as an act of devotion for the crucified Jesus. All of them in the end refused to give in to the short-lived and thin consolation of wealth. So no matter how much money we have or we don't have, taking this blessing and this woe seriously means finding our consolation in the one who is making everything new right now, right now. And turning away from looking for lasting consolation or comfort in anything less than him. No matter how quickly those things deliver a parody of comfort to us. And that's the problem, is they're real quick. (laughs) And they're real immediate. And they feel really good. So I think that turning, it's not a one-off decision for most of us, maybe not for any of us. I think it's usually a redirection that people like us need every day of our lives. And that's what this teaching of Jesus is here for. That's why he has graciously given us this teaching. To give us a new set of dispositions and a a new set of loves. And to direct us through repentance and faith to a new way to live. A new way to be in this world. And that great reversal that he has started, it runs through all of the rest of these beatitudes and woes. Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. Because you're going to laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. And these are things you would avoid. Every one of these things, you would avoid them if you could. We'd change them if we could. These are things that we would never be glad about unless Jesus told us to be glad about them. We'd never choose them, and that, I think, is the point of Jesus choosing them. (laughs) Because absolutely none of them churched. Absolutely none of them will be untouched by his gracious and peaceable reign. Instead of hunger, there will be satisfaction. And instead of tears, there will be laughter. And instead of exclusion, there will be embrace. John Calvin, the, the Swiss reformer, said it like this, at the end... At the end, God will hear their sighs, and he will satisfy their just desires, as it is his work to fill the hungry with good things. And that's the song, isn't it? That's the song that Mary sang before Jesus was even born. That's the song of joy that she had. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. She didn't know how it was going to all work out. But somehow she knew the child she carried would be the one to keep those promises and to make it true. And he is the one church who brings the power to this deeply subversive and wise and life-giving teaching. He's the one who makes them true. He is the one who enables you and I to live them out in faith, in flesh and blood every single day right now. How can he do this? Because he became poor so that we could inherit his whole kingdom. He knew hunger for us so that we could be filled with the bread of life. (laughs) 
He took our sadness, he took our lament, he took our mourning on himself so that we could know the joy and the laughter of a feast forever. And he was reviled and he was excluded so that in the end, we would be embraced like prodigals finally coming home. He heard our sighs. And in love, he gave himself for us. Because it is his work to fill the hungry with good things. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would help us to, to hear these words from Jesus and to believe. To believe that in him this great reversal has already begun, that all of these things that we say we value are not as important as we think they are. And all of these things that we would choose to avoid if we could and not be glad about if you hadn't told us to be glad about them, that we would embrace them as the scandalous heartbeat of your kingdom, of the one who gives himself for us. Father, help us to hear Jesus and to believe and to find wisdom and life in it. Do that so that we can grow up in our faith and, and be more mature in our faith and strengthened in our faith. Do that so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.